Well, the last few weeks, we've been gathering in here together. We've been singing songs like First Noel and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Joy to the World. Sings like songs like O Come All You Faithful. And in all of these songs, they strike a chord with the Christmas story, the, the fact that God came to mankind to visit with us. And they echo with that story, but they also resonate with this call. A call for mankind, for all of us, no matter where we're from, no matter who we are, no matter what we've dealt with, to see this Jesus, to see not only what God has done to bring Him to us, but what it means for Him to be with us, and that our response is to come and adore Him. That there's something about this child, and we, we love children, we love to celebrate with them, celebrate birthdays, celebrate victories and all this kind of thing. We love our children and our families. They're near and dear to us. But there's something about this child that is different from any other person that has ever walked the earth. That something about who he is and what he does and what he says should bring a response of adoring him. At Christmas time, we love to give gifts. We love to speak about gifts. We love to surprise people with gifts. We love to see the expression on their face. And I think if we're honest, I'm going to be admitting this. I, I, I know it's petty. I know it's vain. We like getting gifts. Am I right? We know the Bible teaches us that it's better to give than to receive. But if we're honest, we like to receive some stuff, right? It's okay. You can laugh a little bit about that. It's all right. And at Christmas time, we, we want certain things. We want that, that feeling of joy. We want that sense of hope. We want that, that gift of peace and the encouragement of love. But when we want it, we've got to see that it's got to come from somewhere. It's not something that just can be falsely manufactured. It's not something that we can just automatically say, well, I can get that anywhere. No, it has to come from somewhere specific. And when we look at Jesus, we'll see that He is that specific source, the giver of the greatest of love, the greatest of peace, the greatest of joy, the greatest of hope. And that these are not fanciful thoughts, these are not wishful thinkings, these are sure and secure promises to everyone who trusts in Him. And when we look at Jesus, we've also got to look at the fact that when we talk about Christmas, it's not something that just kind of happened out of the blue. Sure, it was unexpected by many. I mean, obviously there wasn't people that were in Bethlehem saying, well, you know, just in case the Messiah is born, we've got to keep a room open. You know, that, that, that was not the, the goal of the people. That, that was not the, the focus. They were not prepared for that. But God was. In fact, God had been orchestrating everything. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that before the foundation of the world, God had loved us. And predestined us to become His sons and His daughters. He had already worked out the process for that adoption to take place. So even before He said, let there be light, Christmas and the coming of the Messiah was already on God's heart and mind. It was already a part of His plan. And then when man chose to rebel against God by disobeying the one command, God made a promise that one day there would be that first gospel, that first good news, that someone would come 
from the line of Eve that would crush the enemy's head. He would be bruised, he would be struck, but he would crush the, 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 the ending victorious blow. And God had been orchestrating everything. Christmas didn't just happen out of the blue. Whenever He called a stranger named Abram out of Mesopotamia to go to a land that he did not know, to a place he did not know, to leave his own family, He says, I'm going to make kings come from you. All the world will be blessed because of you. Which is funny because he didn't have no kids. And he was old. But he believed. And became that foundation of faith. See, Christmas didn't just happen out of the blue. It was a part of God's plan. That out of the children of Abram would come the promised son, Isaac. And would come the sons, Esau and Jacob. And out of Jacob, who would later become Israel, he would have twelve sons, one of those named Judah. And God, speaking through Jacob, foreshadowed that there would be a ruler that would come out of the people of Judah that would wield a scepter of righteousness. God began working everything into play. So out of that tribe, you would see kings arise. Kings like David. A man that was known after God's own heart. And God had promised him that yes, he would have kings that would follow him. But one day there would become this king that... His reign would never end. He would be the king of all kings. David, flabbergasted, his mind blown, just thought how incredible it was that he, the youngest runt of a family who once was a lowly shepherd that was not even worthy to be brought in when a special visitor came, that God would say, I'm making my plans and I'm going to use you to be a part of it. If you read the... The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the very first chapter, you see a whole line of lists. And when I read that name, I'm amazed at some of the people that are included because the Bible gives you some of their history. It doesn't give you all their history. But some of them, like Rahab, a prostitute. Some of them, like Bathsheba, a woman who committed adultery. Some of them, like David, the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba. People like Solomon, wise, though following and going after a different way. God worked out all of history. And so when you begin the Gospels in, in the New Testament, when you begin these histories that start with the Christmas story, what we see is that Christmas didn't just happen. That this child didn't just happen and go, boop, here I am. That God was working everything. Why? Because He has a special promise, a special plan, a special provision that gives us His presence, that gives us His power, that gives us a purpose. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We're going to be there today. If you want to turn your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 11, you can turn there in your paper-bound copy or electronic copy. It matters not to us. But if you would like a copy of God's Word, you don't have one today, uh, you can reach in the pew in front of you. You'll see one of those pew Bibles. It's going to be on page 610 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible that you can read, take that as our gift to you. Write your name inside the cover. It's yours. We want to do our best to place a Bible in the hands, but ultimately in the heart of people. But we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. And I I love the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. 
And yet it tells us so much about the promised Messiah that, that He would be not just some earthly king, but He would be Emmanuel, God with us, and that He would come about by a virgin's birth. It tells us that He would be born of the people of Judah, of the, of the tribe of David. It's that specific line. It tells us what Jesus will be like. It tells us what Jesus will accomplish and that it's according to a plan that looks like anything else that God had done up to that point. But everything that God had been doing was building up to this divine moment. It also tells us what the Savior would be willing to give. That He would suffer for the people that He came to save. That He wouldn't come and just be a superhero that everybody lauded and automatically worshipped. That He would ultimately have to die in their place. The book of Isaiah also tells us that in the end, this same Messiah will reconcile all things to Himself. And there's the promise of an eternal hope that is beyond anything we see in our broken world. Today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11 and see one of the promises of the many that come from this wonderful, wonderful inspired book of the Lord. We're going to read the first five verses. I invite you to stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. says, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked and with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Lord Jesus, use your word as only you can. May we hear from You today. May we trust in You today and respond to You today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Now, anytime we look at the, the text of Scripture, we try not to distort it. We try not to manipulate it. We say, alright, to understand the context of Scripture very well, you need to look at a couple things. You need to look at the author, you need to look at the, the audience, you need to look at the aim. This was penned by the prophet Isaiah who lived around 700 B.C., like I said, about 700 years before Jesus. He walked in a time when there were two kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, both of them in tumultuous back-and-forth leadership times, both of them dealing with the problems of brokenness that ran rampant, both of them seeking to do something that looked holy, but it was on a man-made scale. And to both of them, God is writing to them, about the consequences of rebellion, even a, a self-righteousness that really was rebellious against who God is. But it, God also tells them the promise of a remnant. God promises them a, a restoration, a reconciliation that would happen, that He would bring about. It wouldn't be of their own power. It wouldn't be of their own might. It wouldn't be of their own invention. It would be God's work doing a new thing. That would make look, look like a desert blooming with life. Somewhere there was once brokenness and fallenness and pain. 
and now being beauty and healing. And God was planning this all along. That was the author speaking to the audience, speaking about his aim. And we talk about those things because when we learn those things, we're able to answer some questions about the Scripture. One, what does it really say? Instead of just saying, well, here I am, an American in this part of Michigan, reading an English version of the Bible in the year 2017, so this is what it means to me today. No, the Bible was written in a certain time for a certain reason, and it's been preserved for us for that same reason. So we are able to see what it means, what it says and then how it applies. But then the question that we must really deal with and wrestle with after all that is whether we'll trust and follow that. Whether we'll really let that sink in, settle in, and have a change in our life. You see, the Scripture is a great thing. It can help entertain us. It can help encourage us. It can even help enlighten us. And all those things are accomplished in the Scripture. But the main purpose is actually none of those. Those are byproducts. The main purpose of the Scripture is that it would change our lives. That it would take root and do something that would bring life where there was no life. That would bring healing where there was once brokenness. And so here we see this promise of God through the prophet Isaiah about a coming Messiah. About some specifics of his life. About why this child, why this promise, why this provision is different from anything else that had gone before. Why this king would be unique. Why Jesus is no ordinary child. So let's look at this and see what it reveals to us about this child that helps us come to a place of greater adoration for who Jesus really is. We can sing about his name. We can decorate our lawn with beautiful things that, that picture who he is. But we need to personally come to a place where it says, God, help me have a greater adoration for who you are, what you've done, and what you've said. And when we look at Jesus, we see even before he was born that he is no ordinary child because he is the first, the child of greatest promise. The child of greatest promise. That a shoot would grow up from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And there was something specific about how God had been orchestrating all of humanity. But he was not going to do some broad, broad thing. He was going to do something very, very specific through a particular lineage. And it had to only come this way. And so we see in Jesus that He is the child of greatest promise. That everything in the world had to be moved by the hands of the Maker, by the hands of the Creator, to bring about this Jesus. I am um, sort of a geek at times. When I think about this promise, um, I was like, you know, what are the odds I know it's Sunday, so people are going to be watching football. And, and sometimes I go to the barbershop and they'll ask me, you know, what do, what do you think the odds are this team will win? And I'm like, I don't really play the odds, but I, I think this has got a better quarterback or that kind of thing. And, you know, I'll, I'll try to say, you know, it's going to be 50-50. That's pretty much every game, I think. It's always going to be 50-50, either because there's two teams on the field, one team's going to win, one team's going to lose. you got a one-and-two shot to win if you're a gambler, that kind of thing. I'm not condoning gambling, just hear me out. And then I've had people say, well, why do you follow this Jesus? What's so special about Him? And I, and I sometimes like to have the conversation, I said, well, other than the fact He's the most influential, impactful person ever in history. And then I ask also the question, well, who do you suggest I follow? 
you know, out of all the people in history, who would you think is the most, you know, important person to set your life as an example or pattern by? But I also say, you know, I, I believe that God put everything together, that God worked all things for His good to bring about this Jesus. And that only in Him is all the promises of who this Messiah, this one from God, would be. Well, they're like, you know, well, there's billions of people in the world. What are the odds, I mean, that multiple people follow that? I'm like, I'm glad you asked. I actually looked this up one time. It's actually 1 in 1 in 10 to the 123rd power that one person would fall under all the odds to fulfill all 333 messianic prophecies about Jesus. One person out of 1 in 10 to the to the 123rd power. I'm probably saying that wrong, I know. But that's basically a 1 with 123 zeros behind it are the odds of someone being all that the Bible says has to fall into place for this Jesus. Jesus falls in line and, and fulfills every one of those prophecies. So, i got to say, God worked all that together for His good to fulfill His promise. The greatest of promises. And he would come from a specific person, a specific line, a specific place. And he would do so. So that when we see God giving a promise, we can take him at his word. That's a, that's a big deal, guys. That's a big deal. What you believe about God is probably the single most important thing about you. Whether you believe you can trust him or not, that's a mighty deal. That's a really big deal because if you don't believe that God can bring about His promises, then how can we believe whether or not we should follow Him? How can we believe whether or not we should worship Him? Whether we should give to Him? Whether we should submit ourselves to Him? Because we sit there and look at God and say, I don't believe you can, I can hold you at your word. That would be as silly as us coming up here. I just did a wedding last week. Our newlyweds are back there. Thank they're back from their honeymoon. But um, that would be like just as silly as them being up here in this moment, looking each other in the eye and be like, you know what, I don't really think you're going to keep your promise, but I'm going to say I do anyways. You know, most of us are like, I believe that person is going to be faithful to me. I know some marriages have not worked out. I know that. But they don't get up here and say, you know what, there's not a shot they're going to ever be faithful to their promise. But I'm going to say I do anyways. We believe that we can trust them. When we come to Jesus, we must believe that we can trust Him too. When we see all that He did to bring about the birth of this child, it's saying, when you see my promise, it shows you can trust me. It shows that I am not only God, but I am good. That I am God who is able to make, bring about all of this for my glory, but I'm also good because I never change my word. You can trust me. This is what we see in Jesus. That He's no ordinary child. He's a child of greatest promise, showing us that we can trust in the Lord. He is also the child of greatest prodigy. What will make this child so smart? What will make this child so intelligent? It says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, I'll be honest. I grew up in the South. Some of you that are from here, you know, you probably said I can pick up on the accent a little bit. And I'll be honest. I've heard about being a redneck part of my life. 
And sometimes rednecks, you know, they're just not seen as the most studious of folks. If, if You know, there's this image, this stereotype. Now, I, I would balk against that, especially in my home state of Mississippi. Um, I love that I'm from Mississippi. I don't live there anymore, but... Man, there's been a lot of great, remarkable things that have happened in history in Mississippi. There's been some terrible things, too, but that's all across the world. But sometimes when people see Christian culture, especially in the South, and especially when they think about Southern Baptists, by the way, if you didn't know that you're in a Southern Baptist church, congratulations, you found yourself in a Southern Baptist church in one of the northernmost states of the United States. But there's this, this view that there's not a lot of intelligence there. There's a view that Jesus really has nothing to offer when it comes to the intellect of this world. But what we see in the Bible is that Jesus is not some uneducated hick that doesn't know his right from his left, right from wrong. He doesn't have a way of viewing things in this world. What we see in Jesus is the person who has the Spirit of God who spoke the cosmos Together, by just speaking it, it happened, mind you. And He holds wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And the reason that this is important is not only that Jesus is the child of greatest promise, but that in Him is all the fullness and mindfulness of God. And when we think about Jesus as being the one who can handle and consider everything that goes on in our life, we do not need to be afraid to bring those things to Him. As if He would be unaware or incapable of dealing with them. Because in Him is found the wisdom of God. There is no experience out there that is beyond His mindset. That in Him is understanding. That is incredible. I love what David says in Psalm 8 when he says, God, whenever I consider how majestic You are, what is, what is man that You are mindful of Him? And then the writer of Hebrews, when expressing about this high priest, he, that is Jesus, he says, we don't have a high priest that is unable to understand all that we've gone through, that has not suffered through the same things. Jesus has understanding of us. But in that understanding, He's not only had the understanding, He has something that He's able to do about it. It would be a weak guy to say that God understands where you are, but He is utterly incapable of doing anything about it. No, this is God we're talking about. And in Him reside counsel, advice. Not only advice, commands, and strength. Power, knowledge, and a fear of the Lord. How many of you want your kids to be smart? Yeah. None of us said, no, I want mine to be dumb as a brick. That's a southernism right there. No, none of us aims for that. But what shapes it? What shapes smart? What shapes that intelligence? What we see in Jesus is that example. That it was utterly in Him. It was was a part of His very being, His very nature. That in His mind, He had wisdom. He had understanding. He had counsel and strength. He had knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And what I see about that 
is that it gives us comfort that we can come to Jesus and bring, us, bring anything to Him. And He gets concerned. And we're able to cast our cares before Him. But we also see that if we're to emulate Him, if we're to be what Christians are to be, that term Christian comes from little Christ, image bearers of the Jesus, if you will, that our life also has to be patterned by wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Where's that going to come from? The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. We've got to be at a place where we're saying, God, may Your Spirit rest on me. Help me as I tackle through this, as I see this life to gain wisdom, to gain understanding, to pray to You, and to hear Your counsel, to know Your strength. To know that whenever I'm trusting in You, it may look foolish by the world, but You are no fool, God. And I fear You. And I'm grateful for You. Because when I look to You, I'm looking at the One that holds everything in His hand. Jesus is no ordinary child, for He's the child of greatest promise, but He's also the child of greatest project. He's got a mind like no other. And He knew full well from the moment He opened His eyes as a child in a manger that He would be closing His eyes as a Savior on the cross. That never escaped Him. He carried that with Him His whole life. Willingly. He's not only the child of greatest promise and the child of greatest prodigy, He's the child of greatest propriety. Now, I did a task this week. I was going to see how good your spelling was. I'm glad we put the words up on the screen. And I'll, I'll just make a little confession. When it came to propriety, I had to look that bad boy up. I did. I'm like, you know, I know there's an I before the E, but, you know, things are weird in the English language. So I had to figure out where everything was. But congratulations, you got some big words today. But I didn't put it up there to, to fancify anything. It was the only word I could come up with to think about Jesus' singular, ultimate focus of the glory of God. In verses 3-4, through four, it says that His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That encapsulates it all. And that was the, the single goal, that He would be a follower, living in complete diligence to please the Father. And that when He walked this earth, He did not judge by what His eyes saw or, or execute justice by what His ears heard. He didn't just start rambling off things because so-and-so said this about so-and-so. Or because this made him feel bad when he saw it. Everything he did was a singular focus to please the Lord. He had the right propriety. The right priority. And in doing so, he was given a name that is above every name. A name that every knee will bow at. But also... He was given the right to make the righteous calls. That He will strike the land with a scepter from His mouth and will kill the wicked with a command from His lips. Sounds harsh for a Christmas story, right? But look around. We can all admit there's brokenness in our world. We can all admit there's pain. We can all admit that sometimes we've probably prayed, God, when are you going to bring a reckoning? When are you going to set things right? Well, if we trust His promise and we trust His mind 
and we trust his propriety, we see that one day he will, and he has the authority to do so. He is the child of greatest propriety. And lastly, he is the child of greatest piety. Verse 5, it says that righteousness will be a belt around his hips and faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. That in everything he carried, he always carried the very holiness and sinlessness of God. That he wasn't pious to be self-righteous. He wasn't pious to go around and be like, oh, look at me, make much of me, woe is me. That was not his life. In fact, he would say no one takes his life from him. He gives it of his own accord. Why did he do that? Because he wanted all things to be accomplished for God's holiness to be on display. See, Jesus is no ordinary child. He's the child of promise that we need, the child of prodigy that we can come to, the child of propriety that has the focus on what is righteous, and the child of greatest piety that will never lead us astray from what is righteous. Why do we need such a person in our life? Why do we need Christmas? Why do we need Jesus? It all comes down to this. We're all charity cases. You know, at Christmas time, you, you see all the charity cases? We do. Nothing wrong with that. I love seeing the bell ringers at the stores. I do. I feel terrible every time I can go by and I don't actually have paper money in my pocket or coins. I do. I'm like, I do everything on a card now. I feel like that guilty smish meal just walking out being like, I know I'm a Scrooge. I'm sorry because I don't have anything in my pocket. But it reminds us of the great need of the world. Every time you see those bell ringers out there, it reminds us of the great needs that are across the world and sometimes just across the street because the Salvation Army is helping people here in Flint. But we say, you know, I want to help out those charity cases. That's one reason it makes us feel bad. Times are hard because some people have it worse than we do, and that is true. But here's the matter, here's the fact that we all need to get across when it comes to God. We're all charity cases. We all have a big problem. We all have a big conflict. We all have a great need, and we are in desperate need of a benefactor. Whether we like it or not, none of us likes being treated like a charity case, but we all are one. And in Jesus, we find the one who gives us with his presence. He actually comes and gets involved. With Jesus, we see the one that is provisioned. He not only comes there, but he's able to do something about our life. We see the gift of power. He is capable of accomplishing that which we are never capable of. And we see the gift of purpose that he shows us that God did not create this life of yours on accident. Just as Christmas did not happen on accident, so are you here. That God created you, fearfully and wonderfully made you. He has a divine appointment for you being here. But lest we miss the point about Christmas. Christmas is ultimately about God glorifying his preeminence. It's about saying and correcting any misgivings about who He is. He said, this is who I am. I am God Almighty and I am holy. And I have seen the brokenness of sin, but I am willing because I love you and know that you can never, ever create the, the means to rescue yourself, that you are in need of a great benefactor. I become that sufficient one. I became that child to live sinlessly to go to the cross. And based on what I've done, I have offered a gift that requires a personal response from all mankind. That awakening your eyes to see who He is, He invites you to trust and receive that gift. But that response has eternal urgency. 
Because it will change where your eternity is. Life or death, blessing or curse, heaven or hell. But it also has eternal urgency because when that gift is received, I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you, it will change your life. Because you'll begin seeing things not just for the here and now, but for the eternal. You'll begin seeing your fellow man, whether you like him or not, with an eternal focus. And if it doesn't, we need to come to God and say, God, show us again what your promise is. What is your mindfulness about? What is your focus? What is your priority? What is your holiness directing? Remind me again that I was a charity case, not so I get miserable in the muck, but so that I celebrate all that you are and glorify who you are. God, let me carry that message to others. We need Jesus because we have a great need. And He fulfills it. He is the gift for all of that. He is no ordinary child. He is the Word became flesh. But I pray that you would receive and know this Jesus personally and be reminded and renewed of your knowledge of Him today. Not so that it's just so you can have a better spirit and mindfulness about the Christmas season. But also that you can see that the mission that Jesus brought to us is the mission that we carry and live out in front of our families. When we demonstrate and tell them about Jesus this year, will they see in our lives that we trust in the promises of God? Will they see in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, that when it comes to God's way and His leadership and direction, that following Him is not foolish because He is the one of greatest prodigy? Will we see that when it comes to trusting God and we see all the brokenness of the world, that we won't fall into a place of utter paralyzation and fear, but we say, God... You've got your priority. You, you have the propriety to make it all work out. And one day you're going to bring that. And we would see and, and demonstrate with our life, in our workplaces, our homes, wherever we find ourselves, that the holiness of God matters. That His piety, and what He willingly gave on the cross, it changed everything and it changed our destination. But it also changes our devotion, what we're living out today. Jesus is the gift. He's not merely just a child. He's the no ordinary child. He's the promise. Let's bank on that promise. Let's live and build our lives on that. And glorify the one who is above all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the time that we've had today. And I pray in this moment, where we have a time of response, that you would be the Lord and ruler of it all. Thank you for the time we've had together. In your precious name we pray. Amen.